Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. see guys get down and negative and I, I just don't understand I think there's a difference between getting down and negative and getting angry you can get a little angry and turn it into a positive there's no problem with that I don't mind guys having a fire uh, but when you get down and negative I just don't understand how it can help you in anything in life it, it's there's it just can't it can't do any good for you this episode is brought to you by some sleep Go to getsome.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.com. We all deserve a better night's sleep. You drink one can 30 minutes before bed, and it's that simple. This awesome blend lets you not only fall asleep fast, but then wake up feeling absolutely refreshed, not hungover or foggy. You're going to absolutely love this product. And in fact, if you go to getsome.com and enter in the promo code Dr. Rob Bell, D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 10% off. Guarantee you're going to love this product. Go there right away. This podcast, 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, is brought to you by our sponsor, SOS Rehydrate. It's an organic drink mix as effective as an IV drip. It's proven by science and used by elite athletes because only the best will do for elite athletic performance so for all your hydration needs our listeners today get 15% off if you enter the code mental toughness at I need so my guest today is uh, I've known him since 2006 when he was a professional golfer and since that time he's been a golf coach and now he's caddied on the PGA Tour since 2009. And uh, he's been the caddy for Ricky Fowler. This is going to be the 10th season coming up. I consider this guest a good friend. And uh, maybe this will come up, but we've had a bet for quite a few years now. And every single book that I have that gets published, he has to contribute with a testimonial. And uh, maybe that story might come up. But our guest today, man, really excited about this, is uh, Joe Scovern. Joe, thanks for joining us, buddy. What's up, Slash? How you doing? Good, man. Maybe we won't, maybe we won't tell that story. <laughs> so we always start out with like mental toughness. Uh, share with us from your perspective. So what is mental toughness? To me, mental toughness can be a lot of things. Um, I think of different things with it. Um, I think of discipline. Number one is the first thing I think of. I think of um, you know battling through adversity. I think. Guys that are mentally tough can get through the hard times, um, especially when you're talking about sports, but in anything in life. And then, you know, I think the ability to perform under pressure, the, those would be the things that come come to my mind when I think of mental toughness. And is there like any examples that you think of, like when you think of mental toughness? Um, any examples jump out at you? I mean, I think of people. I mean, is that what you mean by sure? I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, I think of Tom Brady. You know, I think Tom Brady is a great example. Um, you know, you think of, I mean, you think of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods seems to be a pretty good example. I mean, especially now with everything he's battled through with injuries and in life and everything else, on top of what he'd already done to prove his mental toughness. Right. Um, but I, and you know, I also am a believer. I mean. You would know a lot more about it than me, but I think some people are tough, mentally tough in certain parts of their life, but maybe not in others. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be sports, mental toughness, and then mental toughness outside that um, to me. I, t I totally agree with that, man. Um, so in the things that you've seen, I mean, you've played and you've been paired with probably every golfer that there is pretty much. Um, do you ever, what are some common characteristics that you see of like really mentally tough players that are out there? Yeah, I think mentally tough, they always compete. Mm -hmm. They always, like you think of Zach Johnson, guys like that, like they're just Jordan Speed. They just always compete. Um, 
and then and what do you and what do you mean by that like always compete just to me competing is that they're they're always you know no matter what situation they're in they're always trying to get the most out of it they've always they've always got the attitude that they're going to get the job done um, you don't ever see them sulking and you know off in the corner just you know distraught or or mentally rattled you know you see them they're they're always in it they're always in the round um, and then there's I mean, there's so many other guys that, you know, they, they keep going through their routine no matter what the situation is. They keep believing in what they have. Um, you know, those are kind of the things I think of, that you keep believing no matter where the round is. You keep going through your routine. You keep doing what you do when you're playing well and just waiting for it to come back. Or, or some guys kind of try to make it come back a little bit. It depends on personality type. And, um, and just doing the same thing you do when you're playing well. Right. Even when you're struggling. What is it about preparation when it comes to mental toughness out there with on tour? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of different ways that the guys do that with um, with preparation. You know, some guys are big time practicers, some guys just play, some guys work a lot on their mental game and their routine. Other guys it kind of comes more naturally to them. Um you know, but whatever it is, those guys are figuring out what prepares them to play their best golf. Mm -hmm. Like I said, some guys that's hitting golf ball after golf ball after golf ball. Some guys that's just kind of going and seeing the golf course, getting a look, getting ready to go, maybe thinking about a couple of things. Some guys are working, you know, with different mental coaches or mental devices and getting themselves ready to go that way. You see a lot of different ways to get ready to go, but I think if it, Ultimately, they're trying to prepare themselves to play their best golf. Mm -hmm. You know, is that part of like the challenge for golfers in general is figuring out what works for them? Yeah, I definitely think that is. I think that the guys you see that have success have figured out what works for them from a golf swing standpoint, from a putting standpoint, chipping. You know, there's so many different ways to play golf. And, and then you take it to a mental standpoint too. And some guys are you know, fiery, gritty, you know, you see the Patrick Reed at the Ryder Cup attitude that, you know, gets him going. And then you have guys like my boss that are a lot more relaxed, chill, just kind of even keel and they do their things that way. And there's a lot of guys in between that. And I think it's finding, you know, not only all the physical stuff, but what works for you mentally, what's, what's the mind state, what's the attitude and, and everything that you need to have to play good golf. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that when we see Ricky Fowler on TV that I'm, I'm just more interested in his caddy, man. And, uh, <laughs> say, oh, oh there, <laughs> see, there he is, man. There's Joe and telling my son and daughter that. Hey, what about the mental game when it comes to actually, um, you know, caddying and talk, talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an importance to it, you know, because, no matter what, I mean, you know, I've been out there for 10 years, you're going to screw up at times. Um, you know, you're going to give an opinion that maybe wasn't right on. Um, you know, you try to make sure you don't screw up the little things like numbers and, and wind and things like that, that you can control easily. But there's going to be times when you think it's a seven and he thinks it's an eight and he goes with the seven, doesn't hit a good shot. And, you know, you kind of question yourself whether you should talk to him into that or not. And, you know, was it the right one? Was it not? And, you know, reads, you know, you're going to get called in for reads and you're going to mess up a read every once in a while. You know, it's just the way it is. You know, we all do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think moving on quick is really important. Um, keeping your confidence. Uh, but there's also a balance in knowing, like, when I should get in there and when I shouldn't. And, you know, sometimes you kind of just know when to get in there and when not to and then other times when they're struggling a little bit it's a little hard to know when to get in there when not to if you're just getting in the way of his process or if you're actually helping his process um and so i you know there's a little bit of that in there that you're kind of self-talking to yourself through some things that kind of just keep keep your i don't have a problem keeping my even keel but keep your confidence in it and keep coming with with it you know he has you there for a reason don't just don't just waffle on the answer. Give them the answer. And if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so 
I mean, a lot of things that we've always talked about is like great caddying is timing. Yeah. When it comes to that, I mean, what, I guess my question is this, is like when you make a mistake, what do you do to move on? Um, how do you not let that stick with you? Or is that something like after the round you kind of reflect on and, and how you get better at it? Yeah, I'll kind of, you know, you got a little bit of time between the shot. So I might think about it a little bit like, hey, was there something that I calculated wrong there? Or was it just the way I said it or whatever? And then you kind of kind of just move on, keep going, um, keep doing it. I mean, an example of that, um, at Phoenix a couple years ago, mm-hmm. had a, we had a big discussion on the 17th tee. He had three wood out and I pulled him off, talked to him, got him into hitting driver. Uh, we had a bunker short that I didn't think he could cover if he missed three wood. He had water left that three wood turns over and can, can hop. There's a little there's a little slope there and it kind of all goes towards that water if you get it on that side of the slope. And then everything right is fine and long all the way to the back bunker is fine as well. And his miss is right with the driver. And I went through the whole thing with him. We went through our whole process, decided on driver. He smashed driver right down the middle, got a huge kick, went right through. And there's a little gap in the back for those of those people that have seen uh, seventeen mm-hmm. at, at Phoenix, and went right through into the water. I mean, I'd never felt—I don't know if I'd ever felt that bad when I was on the bag for him because we wanted to win that golf tournament so bad. He had a two-shot lead at the time. We were playing with Hideki, mm-hmm. and just going to that last hole, you just kind of have to get yourself back in it. That like, hey, just like he's got to get himself back in it, got to get yourself back in it, like because you felt like you blew the golf tournament for the guy. He made a perfect swing, did everything, and hit it right over the green and he got himself together we got up there he made birdie got into the playoff ended up going three four holes i believe in the playoff and it ended up ultimately hitting three wood in the water there the when we got back there um but you know he did a really good job of moving on <clears throat> that's an example of where i've got to move on quick too because i'm still thinking about that and i'm scared if he asks me hey you like pitching wedge or you like gap wedge here on 18, you know, I've got to be ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. And uh, I remember that one because that's when Hideki putted well, right? Yeah, he made a lot of putts. Yeah. A lot of putts. But I remember you telling me after that tournament how Hideki was going to be a player that was definitely going to win majors at some point. Yeah. I I think I even said that I thought he would be number one in the world at some point. Mm -hmm. I think I said that. Definitely said he was going to be top five. I think he was close to top five at that time already. When it comes to ball strike, I mean, he is, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's awfully good. Yeah. It's just a little something on the greens, eh? Yeah. But a whole other story, man. Hey, talk about, like, your best experience, like, being on the bag. And, um, you know, I probably have a feeling of it, but can you share that story with us? Yeah, I've, I've actually got – so I know everyone will go with players that's a Ricky Fowler fan and that's seen it. Um, I've actually got – kind of three that stand out for me. Great. Uh, one, one is players is definitely up there. I mean, players was a special comeback. You know, those iconic holes, him hitting those shots over and over and over on 17, and the two drives he hit down 18 were just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything that had got led up to that with the, the survey uh, that the player, that the anonymous survey of the players saying he's the most overrated player on right. tour. And that came out Monday or Tuesday of that week. I remember that. We hadn't won in a while. Um, so that was a that was a big deal. I think it was a big step in his career. The players is looked at as like kind of that one right behind the majors with everybody. And you get a lot of, there's a lot of respect that goes with winning that golf tournament. Um, but it was huge, those last six holes, man. I mean. Yeah, the way he did it was just, I mean, unheard of, right? Yeah. So. So that was a really cool experience for me. Um, and I would say he'd probably put that, I would say, I don't want to speak for him, but that's probably his number one or at least close. Let me, let me ask you, I don't mean to cut you off, Joe, and I apologize, but is that something that you think like the best in all kind of different sports do is they, they take that and, and use that to their motivation? I mean, I would think, yeah, I would think that, you know, you use, you're talking about the survey? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great example, yeah. right? Yeah, I think the survey, yeah, something like that, it puts a little chip on your shoulder, you know. Um, 
whether they say they pay attention to it or not, I think they all do. Right. And um, when your peers say that, you know, whether, you know, whether they really did or not, you know, it being an anonymous survey, you know, that's one that will get your attention, you know. So I was pretty nice for him to go win right after that and kind of show everybody what he's got. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, think about like Tom Brady, right? I mean, 199th pick, sixth round. I mean, that was something that always stuck with him. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you're being realistic, it, you have to have some type of chip on your shoulder to achieve that high of a level because human nature, once you start making money, you know, once you're comfortable, you get older and older and older in that sport, you know, you get 35, 36, you know, you've been doing it since you were, you know, who knows what age, depending on the sport, um, you know, things like that. You almost need something that's a chip on your shoulder and some type of motivation to get up and go work out on the days you don't want to or go up and get up and go hit balls when you still when you feel pretty good about your game but hey I need to get better at this you know I think you need some type of motivation or chip you know I mean when you look at guys like Tiger and Phil how hard they both still work it's pretty amazing with all that money in the bank all those wins all the you know how famous they are all the attention they get all the things going on outside of golf and they still get up and put the work in it's pretty impressive yes indeed man didn't mean to take that distraction man go ahead what else were the best best memories you've had yeah, and then the other one's um, Quail Hollow, his first win. Um, for, a, for a caddy, the, the communication we had on that playoff hole and getting stepped in on the club and him pulling off the shot when that ball's in the air, you know, knowing that we were taking a club that could bring the trouble into play and he pulled it off and went and made the putt. And, you know, it was his first PGA Tour victory. That was very satisfying. Always a tough golf hole. What's that? Yeah, absolutely. And then... Um, and then the other one, even though we didn't win the golf tournament, I thought the Masters was very was very satisfying this year in the fact that he did such a good job down the stretch of executing. And even though Patrick went and got the job done and it was disappointing that we didn't win, um, the way that Ricky put together the weekend it was the best weekend he's ever had in a major. He, he responded when the lights were on and when everything was there and he hit the shot on 18. He went through his routine. Um, he did so many things well. I thought that was a really rewarding week that I think we can take with us. Mm -hmm. When you're through that whole experience, man, what's it like being on the bag and being in control of your own emotions? I mean, I know it's one shot at a time, but do you focus on your breathing? Uh, what is it that you do to stay calm? I don't really focus on the, the breathing or anything that much. I don't think about it a whole lot. I mean, there'll be times where, you know, you get pretty into it and, and, but I've just been out there as long as I have and just I've always really worked on showing less and less emotion and just being as even keel as possible no matter if he's made five birdies in a row or five bogeys in a row. I try to be as close to the same as possible. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I'm one of those guys I feel like that's an important thing. If anything you're doing to support an athlete that you should be as even keel as possible and shouldn't react uh, to situations too much. But I mean, you definitely, the juices get flowing and you can feel it. And I like it better on Sunday in contention. I think it's, I, I think it keeps you alert. I think it keeps you into it. And I don't have to hit a golf shot. So I'm not feeling those same things he's feeling. I, I, I've just kind of got the juices flowing in a good way. And um, yeah, there's times where you know it's going to be, be an in-between club and you're working through things and you're trying to work through those things and do it. But Really, more than anything, I just try to make sure we stay in our routine, do what we normally do, go through the process. And, you know, if we go through the process, you know, like back to that Phoenix situation, we went back, look, you know, talked about it. Mm -hmm. I, I even talked about it with Butch Harmon, and we went through our whole process, and that's just what happened, you know. And if we had rushed the process or gotten ahead of us, because that's happened before when he was a young, young player, you know, we both inexperienced and things start moving fast and you look back and you're like, man, you know, we might have rushed that a little bit or done this or done that. If you go through the process, you do everything right. That's all you can really do. And yeah. then, you know, it's going to happen from there. So Joe, you still play, you've been a professional golfer and been around golf your entire life. Um, you know, you were one of the best, you know, 12 year olds in the, in the nation. How, and I don't think people understand this. So this is my question. I don't think people understand how good that those guys are 
um, at the highest level. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that, about how good that they are? Yeah, especially the guys I get to see week in and week out because right. of where he's at. I mean, I see the top 20 and 30 in the world all the time. And it'll definitely spoil you when you go play golf, your expectations. I mean, my expectations are out the door. And, you know, I'll go four weeks without playing and I go think I can hit this little hold seven iron that Ricky hits. And yeah, you just the the level of golf you get to see with those guys is is pretty special and i've almost become immune to it because i get so used to seeing it all the time mm -hmm. but when you take a step back and you even go watch a college tournament or you go watch you know high school players or you go play with guys that are plus twos the difference is just the the margin isn't even close and i don't think people understand the numbers in golf don't do it enough justice because the golf courses we're playing out there, people see, oh, this guy shot 68 at our home club. Well, 68 there and 68 at Shinnecock are like completely different worlds. Sure. So, um, so I think that's the hard thing that people get stuck on is unless they're there live to hear the sound, see the speed, it's hard to it's it's hard to compare. Um, but you know, there's also so many great players coming up in college, mini tour level. That, I mean. You're just seeing more and more good golf everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, most people are always going to say, well, he bombs it, you know, and, and that's true. What do you think really separates, you know, and, and out, even outside of the mental game and how they think and their overall perception, what do you think game-wise separates, like, top 30 from journeyman golfers who are still pros? Yeah. I think a lot of it is mentality and belief. Uh, but then I think, I think there's something individual for everybody. You know, mm -hmm. somebody their putter might separate them. Somebody their the way they drive it might separate them. Somebody might be the guy that you know he's the guy that looks like he's the most talented guy you've ever seen. And then somebody else might be the gritty guy that's just figured it out. He knows how to practice. So it's hard to just say one thing separates them. Mm -hmm. uh, look statistically. You know, ball striking seems to be the thing that comes up over and over week in and week out in the top 30 if you look at mark brody's stats and, sure. and everything else that the ball striking is what's going to separate them right and then the putter gets hot when it gets hot but i think everybody's a little different there's somebody that has something in their game or something in their mental game that separates them from everybody else or keeps them up at that level so one part of their game is the one of the best in the world at what they do not, not necessarily all parts. Usually there's, usually they have one statistical category that they really stick out in, right? And they yeah. know that that's what they're good at. And either or other. Now there's some other guys that are just all, there's some guys out there that are just all around good at everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just depends. And then, you know, you look, you look statistically, I believe the 150 to 200 kind of becomes the most important thing on the PGA Tour. Sure. If you look historically, who went, who leads strokes game there is usually, you know, right up there near the money leader and the FedEx Cup leader, um, very close to the top because you get that range of shots so much on the PGA Tour. Right. How, um, how important is 100 yards and in and then just around the greens out there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very important. Um, I was just looking over some stats the other day. I mean, when you get in that 50 to 75, 75 to 100 range, you don't get a whole lot of attempts. So it doesn't become as important statistically as the, you know, 125 to 150, 150 to 175, 175 to 200. You're just going to get those shots more. But then you get around the greens, and, I mean, any golfer can relate when – you know you can get it up and down, and you know you can go save yourself. You've watched all those years of Tiger and Phil um, and Jason Day now. To me, Jason Day's got one of the best short games in the world, if not the best. Yeah. Um, you watch that, and you save rounds. You say you, you put less stress on yourself on your ball striking when you know you can go get it up and down consistently. Um, and you just keep momentum a lot of times by getting the ball up and down and not only what it does for your score, but just what it does for you mentally going forward that you know, hey, I kind of chopped it around on that hole, got myself out of it and moved on. Um, so, and then statistically speaking, obviously it's got value, you know, the, the strokes gain, short game, strokes gain, putting have value against the field as well. Um, so, 
I've always said, you know, good short game, good putter just frees up your mind a little bit because you you know you can get away with a little bit more. Yeah, I like this. I like to say like uh, the short game in golf is kind of like rebounding in basketball. Like it's not going to – if you're the best rebounding team, it's not necessarily going to win you the game, but you're giving yourself more opportunities. That's a great – that's a great analogy. Hey, thanks, yeah. man. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I also, lo- I also look at it – the reason why I say rebounding in the short game is because, you know, what does it take to be a good rebounder? I mean, that's a mentality, and that means you have to work at that. And the same thing yeah. with like short game. Totally agree. I mean, really, to be a good wedge player, you know, and get around the greens, it really is just understanding the technique and work, right? It's, you know, you have to be blessed to hit it 320 in the air. You know, you have to, you know, be able to create speed, do all these things. Not everybody can figure that out, but anybody can go sit down with a Pels book or some type of system, try to figure out, hey, I'm going to hit a 50-yard shot, 70-yard shot, and it's, it's discipline, really getting good as a wedge player. I think that anybody with mild talent can become a very good wedge player. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we always talk about is these hinge moments, right? This uh, one event, one person, one moment that makes all the difference. Having known you for so many years, share with us uh, what's what's been a hinge moment in your life. Yeah, I mean, for my career, it's it got to be I was, uh, I was working a couple events here and there um, while I was coaching college golf for a friend of mine, Brendan Steele, who's now won, I believe he's got three wins on the PGA Tour now. Is it three? Um, so he had a very successful career. He was playing the, it was the, called the Nationwide Tour at the time. This was in 2008 and nine. I did that for him. Yep. And um, Ricky was about to turn pro in the fall of 2009. And I had known Rick growing up. We grew up in the same town. I'm eight years older than him. And he used and to he used to look up to you though. Like you that's what I'm told, yeah. That that didn't that didn't last very long, sure. did it? <laughs> but yeah, when he was a little guy, um, I guess he did a little bit. So and I was going to work Omaha and Columbus for Brendan. Mm-hmm. And Ricky asked me to work Columbus, the nationwide event, because he got in as an all American. And um, I went to Brendan and said, hey, you know, Rick wants me to work that second event. You know, what do you think? I know, because I had previously told Brendan I couldn't work the event. I had something going on with my girlfriend at the time. And, you know, I was just out there working for fun for Brendan. It wasn't wasn't my job. <clears throat> so I was going to go do this. This turned into what could be a possible job opportunity with Ricky. You know, he was the number one amateur in the world. Everything else, he said, hey, I'm looking for a, for a caddy. And. Um, everybody kind of around me said, Hey, I think you need to go do this. And to Brendan's credit, he said, Hey man, you go do it, you know, all in on that. He was great about it. Um, cause you were still golf coach at the time. Yeah, I was still a golf coach. So mm-hmm. this, you know, I was just caddying for fun for Brendan to help him out a little bit. And, um, went and did it and we ended up bogeying the 72nd hole to go to a playoff with Derek Lamley and then lost, I believe, on the second or third playoff hole. I can't remember. I think it was the second playoff hole. It was part three there. Um, and Ricky asked me to come out in the fall, and I quit what I was doing. Came out in the fall. He didn't have a card yet. Went and played well all fall. Got into final stage of Q school. Got his card, and there we go. Yeah. So that's a, pretty much a hinge moment. I was I was at that event. Uh, I think I was actually caddying for Uncle Gary. Oh yeah, Uncle Gary. So is it true then that I caddied for you one of your last pro events? Yeah, it would have been. That was in 2006. I played a few more in 2007, but yeah, that was in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And funny story about that is I missed the cut. And that was actually the first time I went out and caddied for Brendan in the final round because he was in contention. He just asked me to come out there with him. I don't even think I was carrying the bag. I think we were in a cart. It was just kind of <laughs> like, he just wanted somebody to talk to, you know, down the stretch. He ended up losing in a playoff. I guess I'm good at getting guys to lose in playoffs. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it, t- it takes a lot to be in there, right? I think you have to lose them in order to win them. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. awesome, man. Hey, so. We have a lot of different athletes, a lot of different parents, you know, that are listening to this podcast. Um, you know, being in the world of golf and from everything you've seen, from from your dad being a, a you know PGA professional and youth sports and youth golf, 
what what would you say or what recommendation or advice would you have for parents when it comes to this world of youth golf yeah there's a few things um you know being around it so much my like you said my my dad being a golf pro my mom running the local junior golf association i feel like i've watched a lot of it and i've watched kids like Ricky and how his parents were and, you know, <clears throat> how successful it was. I've watched, you know, the parents that get super involved and, you know, or the overbearing parents. You know, I, I think you just got to let, especially at the young age, just let your kid enjoy the game. Like, just let them go do their thing, find them an instructor, stay out of it, just support them, um, let them do their thing. If you want to play with them, great, but let, let them do their thing. And, and as they get older, um, you know, I understand requiring a bit more out of them. You're putting money into it. You're doing things, and, and you want them to put the work in. But other than encouraging them to put the work in, I, I think parents should most of the time take a backseat. Now, that, now there's times where maybe golf is your thing. You play professionally. You're an expert on it. You can work with your kid, and you can do that. My dad and I had that relationship. My dad was great about it. My dad was the guy that was very quiet at tournaments, um, but then would work with me and do whatever we needed to, to get better. But you're always going to butt heads when you have that as well. Whether whereas like with another instructor, that's not going to happen. Um, with your parents, it's a little bit different relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think one, I think they spend too much money traveling around at young ages. Um, you know, they spend what could be a college education when kids are 10, 11, 12, and when you're 10, 11, 12, that stuff doesn't mean anything later. Like it's it's great, it's fun at the time, it's fun to go win golf tournaments. Maybe it builds some confidence and things, but it doesn't mean anything in the big scheme of things. You know, the tournaments start meaning something more when you're 15, 16, 17. And if you have a national level golfer, then you've got to start spending a little money to send them around, play the big, bigger tournaments, you know, so colleges will notice them, everything like that. Um, but I think at a young age, kids try to advance too fast into mm -hmm. the, the, the national level, the big things. And there's no reason you can't go play local tournaments that you can drive to that are cheaper, that you're still playing, as long as you can still play multi-round tournaments and go get competition in and, and do all that. Um, and then the other thing is some kids just want to play because it's fun and their parents want them to get a scholarship or become a professional so bad. And you know, not everybody's Ricky Fowler. And you know, some of these kids are just gonna enjoy the game for the rest of their lives and they're gonna be the people that are members at country clubs because they're doctors or dentists or anything like that. And that's what my parents try to encourage in their association is like, yeah, we've had professionals come out of here, but most of you aren't going to be. And so you want to like the game for, for a lifetime. And you want to, that's what the game is built on is those people that go and when they're 35, 40, 45, they play and then they get their kids into the game. Yeah. And that's really what it's all about. And then if you separate it from a talent level, then great. Keep going. One of the things that I share, if parents knew what it, took to be a pro golfer they'd never sign them up because they're looking at top 30 they're not looking at the guy on the web.com who's been there for five years and still just getting by um, yeah and and golf's the one sport that you can play your entire life i mean you're yeah. gonna you're gonna stop playing football um those pickup basketball games are gonna end at some point but you can always then play golf absolutely and, and the point you just made about how hard it is, I mean, playing golf, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, people always say, well, he plays golf for a living. And you know what? Those guys in the top 30, they live a great life. And, and it's, it's fun, but it's by no means easy. You know, there's a difference between a great life and an easy life. And uh, they have to put the work in. They have to show up every day. There's no guaranteed contracts other than the endorsements. You know, you lose your card, you're going back. And that's just the way it is. And it's a stressful way to make a living if you're not in that top 30 to 50, um, you know, battling for your card every year, not knowing what your, your income is going to be. You know, I mean, I know there's a lot of other jobs like that, but it's not just show up, play golf, get your paycheck and move on. You know, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, if you took the 200th best doctor in the world, uh, that's a pretty good doctor. Yeah. If, you, if you take the best 200th player, I don't even know if one person can mention like who that is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've 
you know, I probably have like past winter status, but nobody knows who that is and they're not on tour. Thanks, man. Um, hey, can you, I mean, share with us then uh, a little bit about your journey from like junior golf, because you, you excelled when you were, when you were younger. Um, mm -hmm. Can you, can you kind of walk us through that, that path a little bit and then? Um, yeah. I mean, cool. <clears throat> I grew up, uh, I got into the game pretty heavily at nine. My dad didn't push me into it too, too young. I took to it real quick, played, you know, I was the kid that played 25, 30 junior tournaments a summer. I was my parents drive me all around Southern California. Um, you know, I was playing desert junior golf, Southern California, PGA junior golf, Valley junior golf, a little bit of San Diego, North County junior golf. And, um, you know, I was all over the place and I, I won a lot of tournaments. I was, I was a pretty talented 11, 12 year old, you know, finished sixth at junior world and won a bunch of tournaments. Um, and then, you know, 13, 14 was still pretty good and, you know, still did a pretty good job of it. Was playing some other sports though. Got kind of interested in other things. Got to high school. Um, started playing quarterback. My high school team, and then my junior and senior year played basketball, which was a small high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and then played golf the whole time. It was pretty good, but kind of stopped progressing. Uh, went from you know big schools looking at me to you know only a couple D ones here and there. I had like Air Force Academy, UC Santa Barbara. And then a bunch of smaller schools looking at me. Um, ended up going to UC Santa Barbara on a golf scholarship. Went up there, played for a year, but I redshirted. Uh, transferred to a Division three school, University of Laverne. Had some pretty good success there. Was All-American a couple times. And um, felt like I never really did what I could have done in college golf for uh, my potential. Um, but felt like I was good enough that I could still give it a shot to go play. Went and battled the mini tours for three or four years, you know, trying to make cuts. And I won one one day event. Went to Q school a couple times. Missed first stage by one one year. Um, and really just never got good enough, you know. And um, I kind of hit plateaus and couldn't figure out how to get better from there. Realized that, you know, and. I was fortunate enough, I had a few people help me out, sponsored me so that I could get through and then put myself in some debt trying to get through. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I went the path I went because it, it turned out to here, you know, right. and it wasn't what I planned. There was a lot of different turns in the road, um, but I'm happy where I'm at and, and I've been very fortunate to live the life I've lived. Yeah. And I know you wouldn't change anything. <clears throat> so. But knowing what you know now, let's say if you were to give advice to yourself, yeah, um, you know that younger self when you were 13, 14, uh, 15, yeah. what is it that you would, what would you have told yourself then that you kind of know now? I would have gotten less involved in mechanics and golf swing. I got, I got caught up thinking that I needed to do that to get to that next level and I got ahead of myself, uh, you know, this is what you need to do at this level. So just taking care of, hey, you're 15, just keep taking care of this level. I got into the, hey, okay, well, what do they do at the college and the pro level? And okay, and I got into the mechanics and I got so confused that, you know, I'd go in and out. When my mechanics were on, I could play, you know? Mm -hmm. When my mechanics were off, I was lost. I just didn't know where the golf club was and, and I kind of lost all of that. And I'm still like that now, um, it's just, I don't really have a natural move to go to because I did so many different things that it's all, I'm always trying to find that, that thing now, you know? And, um, I think, I think that was my biggest mistake. Um, <clears throat> instead of trying to get better in little ways, I tried to get better in leaps and bounds. And I thought that these guys all had it perfect all the time. And you have to have this perfect golf swing. And that's not true at all. You know, you have mm -hmm. to own your golf swing, make a repeatable golf swing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Learn how to hit that little shot in the wind. Learn how to judge that lie. Like the little things that you don't realize are so important. That's it's become a big deal. The, the more you get up there in class of golf, and uh, the more you move up levels. Um, and then you know, for me, if you were really going to be a you know professional golfer, I mean, 
the football probably didn't help me. I mean, throwing a football 200 times a day isn't going to help you very much. You yeah, know? but I mean, did you love, I mean, at that point, were you still in love and had that whole passion about golf? Or, I mean, was there, because you became an athlete. Yeah, football, I, I still wanted to be a professional golfer, but football took, you know, and it kind of it split it up. Yeah. And I love football. And I don't regret anything about <clears throat> playing football because, right. I mean, this is a mental toughness podcast. What it teaches you, I mean, teamwork, leadership, how to interact with, you know, guys from different backgrounds, um, socially, economically, and come together for one common goal, you know. One guy doesn't take over a football field. I mean, there's 11 guys making that play happen at all times. It's the, to me, it's the ultimate team game. Um, you know, the discipline, you know, running hundreds that made no sense. They were just to build mental discipline, you know, mm -hmm. running up hills in 105 degrees, you know, with your pads on, like all those things. I just think it taught me so much that uh, has helped me in other areas of my life. Um, but I could have done a better job of balancing you know, then I got involved in basketball and everything else. I could have done a better job of balancing some things with the golf, um, ultimately, but it is what it is, and it, it turned out how it did, and who knows how it would have turned out if not. Um, I'm very happy with the result of it. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, I know you wouldn't change anything. I'm just yeah. always looking at, um, you know, how could we be able to help then other people kind of on that journey. I um, think people get – I think golfers, you see – I mean, there's been plenty of high-level professional golfers get lost in mechanics. Yeah, You have to be very careful with that. They're important, but you also have to be very careful that you're understanding what you're doing and it matches up and you're not getting lost out there. And it can get bad when you get, get lost there. And I think you and I have both seen it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so share with us, man. Um, I'll kind of put you on the spot. Share with us, again, one story from all the years that you've caddied. Doesn't have to necessarily be about Ricky, but uh, is there a story that's really just, uh, that's impressed you from that you saw out there in so many you know, different majors and tournaments? I'm trying to think if there's one story or instance <clears throat> that I can think of. Or a player um, that always plays well, like when they're paired with you or something. <laughs> Oh, you're trying to you're trying to get into that Sergio conversation, aren't you? <laughs> what do you mean, Joe? <laughs> the fact that Sergio always plays well when he plays with us. Perfect timing on that after he just beat us to become the number one Ryder Cup point winner in history. Um, yeah, Sergio does always play well with us. That wouldn't be the story I would pick, though. Okay. Um, you know, we had gotten ourselves, we were playing in the second or third to last group at Memorial in 2012. And this was right after Ricky had one quail hollow, had a putt to try to put the pressure on Matt Kuchar at the players, um, and finished second there. And was in, I believe, third or fourth, might have been even fifth, but he was three back going into the last round, and we were paired with Tiger. And oh, so, you know, Ricky's on a <clears throat> Ricky's on a pretty good run here, becoming one of the better players in the world at this point with that run he's on. And um, we birdied the first hole and uh, proceeded to just not have a good day. And it, it was a struggle that day and got ourselves. We were pretty much out of the golf tournament, you know, through seven or eight holes and just kind of trying to hang in there. And Tiger had gotten himself in the golf tournament, was right in the mix. <clears throat> For the people that watched that or see the highlight clip, he had uh, 16 after they redid the hole. Pretty much impossible to hit that green downwind to a back pin. So him and Ricky had both blown it over the green right. And uh, Tiger hits this chip. And it was just unbelievable when it hit the green. You're like, man, this is really good. And ends up just barely falling in the hole. Place goes nuts. Sabatini, I believe, was leading at the time and he was back on the on the green on fifteen. Tiger sent the message back and just watching Tiger, because we had gotten ourselves out of it, we could watch him a little bit more and learn, you know, when we weren't hitting the golf shot. Um, whereas if you're in the thick of it, you're not gonna pay attention to that right. stuff. You're paying so much attention to yourself. And just watching him, the way he handled things, the way he did things. I mean, he was in the middle of, that was the start of him winning eight times in two years. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so he was, he wasn't 2000 Tiger, but he was pretty dominant eight times in two years. And um, just getting to see him and the way he handled it, the way he did things, the grit he had, the, the, the shots he hit, that was pretty cool for me and pretty impressive to watch him, watch the fans react to him, watch everything that went on from up close and personal. Yeah. You mentioned that, and I remember this one, like he really, really thought like every 25 footer was going to go in. Yeah. I mean, when he gets locked in, he looks like he, he thinks everything's going to go in, you know, and, and that's what you see out of great putters, right? I mean, Jordan Speed, when Jordan Speed gets rolling, you know, he's shocked when one of those doesn't go in, you know, when he hits a good putt, he thinks it's going in. And, um, you know, I think that's the mindset you end up getting in um, when you get going, you know. I don't think people understand, like, how mentally tough Tiger is from how he has to deal with all that stuff outside the ropes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you see, just from personal with Ricky, like, yeah, the amount of things, when you become a top player, media, sponsors, all those things, and they're all part of it. It's just like anybody's life that, you sign up for there's tough parts of your job parts of your job that drain you and parts of your job that are enjoyable and um, just Tiger gets pulled out in so many ways uh, everywhere he goes the expectations on him I mean the amount of people with the PGA Championship just following his group following him um, I mean you can see it on TV at the Tour Championship walking up the 72nd hole when they let him all in the ropes he's such a big figure and he moves the needle so much I mean the amount of the second most popular guy on tour compared to how popular he is and the demands on him it's not even close yeah. it's mind-blowing I mean what he's done for the game what he's done for us what he's done for purses um, I mean it's just it's mind-boggling and for him to have to go through that every week and then bring his focus and bring the intensity and he brings so much intensity that it you know he gets a lot more mentally drained than other guys because of his focus level and, and what he's got and what he puts into it and that's why he's in the gym and that's why he does all the other things and that's why he plays less of a schedule usually because he wants to be able to bring it 100% all the time and um, yeah and then you look at all the outside stuff he's gone through I mean it's it's pretty impressive that he can do what he's done in this year. I mean, the way he played at the end of the year was, I mean, it's pretty special with the, the back fusion and everything else he's been through that he's found it and he's, and he's done what he's done. Yeah. I always, I heard this one and it's like, Tiger doesn't move the needle, Tiger is the needle. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I heard Joe Buck, Joe Buck knows sports pretty well. I, I watch all the golf channel stuff during the, the majors at our, our houses we stay at, the other caddies and I, we like to watch the live from and the whole deal. And um, Joe Buck was on there talking about Tiger. And I think he said he's the sing, he moves the needle more than any other athlete he's ever been around. Like it, he said it, he just never seen anything like it. He hasn't been a part of anything like it. Yeah, no question, man. No question. So, there you go. Why he is the needle. Yeah. Moving the needle. Uh, last question, man. What advice can you give to us when it comes to mental toughness? And is there something that we can do uh, that we need to be aware of in order in order to build that muscle? And maybe it is to that junior golfer. For anybody, I think for anybody, to me, the number one most important thing is is the more disciplined you can be in anything in life, right? The more disciplined you can be, the more prepared you can be. You know, um, those are the two things that have helped me the most in doing what I'm doing is, um, and in golf, that doesn't always translate to good scores, right? You can be disciplined, you can be prepared, but if you're not practicing the right thing or it's not there, that doesn't always translate. But in most other things in life, being disciplined and being prepared to me equals success. And then the better attitude you can have, and I, I think in golf, you know, having a good attitude and going out there and trying to enjoy the game and trying to enjoy the challenge, the more you can do that, the more you can take it on, I think the better off you are. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you talk about having a good attitude out there, is there anything that like specifically you're referring to? Well, I just think that you see guys get down and negative, and 
I just don't understand. I think there's a difference between getting down and negative and getting angry. You can get a little angry and turn it into a positive. There's no problem with that. I don't mind guys having a fire. Uh, but when you get down and negative, I just don't understand how it can help you in anything in life. It, it's there's it just can't it can't do any good for you. Yeah. Only thing that you know, moving forward, staying positive. And it doesn't have to be a false positive, but just you know, taking it on, trying to compete. Um, just like anything else that happens to you in life, just take it on the chin, keep moving on, trying to keep moving forward. And you might not always be positive or in a great mood at that time, but if you keep trying to move forward, it can turn back into that. And and golf, unless you're playing for a living, it, it's just a game. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to be out there and enjoy it and to compete. And we all do. We all get in our own way and we all get all worked up because we're worried if somebody thinks we shoot 85 that we can't play or... You know, if I hit this bad shot in front of this person, or, or you're just frustrated because you know you're better than that. But really, you're just playing it. You're, when you were a kid, you just enjoyed trying to get better at it and the challenge of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's been the hard thing for me um, as a guy that I know I'm never going to play the kind of golf I used to play. I said, I joked around that I'm just pr- trying to get worse, slower. And so that's the hard part is I always enjoy trying to get better in the challenge, but I don't, I'm not going to put enough game, time into my game now to actually be able to go work on trying to discover something or get better. So that's been a balance for me of trying to figure out how to enjoy it when, you know, I can, I can shoot some high scores now every once in a while. So yeah, sure. Enjoy that. It was, it was a little tough, but I've kind of found a balance with it. No, that's awesome, man. Uh, Scott, man, thanks so much uh, for joining us, man. I really appreciate you taking the time, buddy. It was a good conversation, man. Absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.